Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. J. Budzichewski, Professor of Government and Philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin, giving a talk entitled Natural Law, Conscience, and the New Evangelization. This talk is part of the Distinguished Speakers Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. You know, all of the recent popes, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Francis, have emphasized the importance of the natural moral law to the new evangelization. In other words, while we're affirming the gospel, they also want us to affirm the natural moral law. Now, at first, that may seem strange. It might seem very strange. The gospel is the good news of liberation from slavery to sin and death, and it's centered on what the Son of the living God has done for us by his life, death, and resurrection. Who could be deaf to the appeal of liberation? By contrast, natural law seems pretty remote, dull, an abstract theory of interest only to philosophers. Why drag that into it? But wait, on second thought, matters are more complicated. At least I think they are. To be interested in liberation, you have to admit that you are enslaved. Our slavery to sin and death isn't a physical bondage, like being locked up in steel manacles. It's a moral and spiritual bondage, more like being drugged. And one of the hallmarks of that kind of bondage is that the slave is deeply confused. His condition contradicts his own nature. He's out of joint with what he really is. His heart is riddled with desires that oppose its own deepest longings. He demands to have happiness on terms that make happiness impossible. In fact, the slave is so confused that he denies being a slave at all. He thinks his slavery is liberation. After all, he says to himself, I can do whatever I please. He thinks liberation would be slavery. So to him, the gospel isn't good news, it's bad news. To him, the good news isn't the prospect of being forgiven and healed of sinful tendencies, but the prospect of getting whatever from time to time he may happen to desire. And yet, he's restless. We humans, we images of God, are made in such a way that even though we can be pushed and pulled and drowsied by the flickering images of our fantasies and our desires, we can't be satisfied by them. We know too much, even in oblivion. Fallow knowledge troubles our sleep. We lie under the prickling enchantment of the law written on our hearts, which is stronger than the counterspell of sin and can so can never be quite scratched out. And what is this law written on our hearts? It's the natural law itself. It isn't, as it turns out, a mere philosophical theory. It's the burning personal reality of natural moral knowledge, which the theory, the philosophical theory, is about. By my count, there are at least four natural testimonies, four inbuilt witnesses 
ingrained in human nature to the foundational principles of right and wrong, which is why we're entitled to call the natural law natural. But I'm not going to talk about all four today. I'm going to focus on only one of them, which is conscience, deep conscience. No man, no woman can honestly claim not to have a conscience, and it's much more powerful than we recognize. Now, the claim that I've just made about the power of conscience seems strange and paradoxical today. At least it does to most people. It's become fashionable to say that even if there are a real right and a real wrong, they're so obscure that we can't tell what they are. We say things like, well, I'm doing the best I can, but everything is just shades of gray and I'm just blundering through the fog. We don't even believe in conscience if we've been well enough indoctrinated by the culture because we've been taught to consider conscience a mere leftover of the way we happen to have been raised. You know, your mom tells you something and your dad tells you something and the policeman tells you something and your teacher tells you something and your, and your priest or pastor tells you something, your professor tells you something and some of those somethings get inside and some of it sticks and that's your conscience. And that's all there is to it. And if different stuff got inside, then you'd have a different conscience. So it's all arbitrary. I'm against murder, some of my students tell me, but if I'd been raised differently, maybe I'd be for it. So conscience is arbitrary anyway. But what classical natural law theory claims, what the tradition claims, is just the opposite. Sure. The judgments that we make are influenced by how we're raised. That is an aspect of conscience. That aspect of conscience is what the classical thinkers called conscientia, and it's where we get our English word conscience. But at a deeper level, there lies a disposition, a natural tendency, a habitus, to recognize the foundational principles of right and wrong the most general moral basics, to recognize them as true just because they are true. Just because they are true. Take a child. He may never have heard of the golden rule. It may be that nobody has ever told him, you know, you ought to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He has no explicit, no formal knowledge of this. He's never heard of it. Uh, one day he's pulling his sister's hair and his mom says, don't pull sister's, it's Susie's hair. How would you like it if she pulled your hair? And it makes sense to him. Why? He can recognize for himself, if he's reached the age of reason, that that, is, that that makes sense, that this is true, that the underlying principle that he shouldn't treat her the way he doesn't want to be treated himself is true. Now that's the other aspect of conscience. It isn't just pumped in from outside, although what comes from outside can activate it can confront it, can elicit it, can draw it forth, can bring it to the surface. That's the other aspect of conscience then. The classical thinkers called it synderesis. You don't need to remember the term, but that's what it was called. The greatest of them, Thomas Aquinas, says this about it. I quote, the natural law as to general principles is the same for all, both as to rectitude and as to knowledge. The natural law as to general principles is the same for all, both as to rectitude and as to knowledge. Now notice he's talking about the general principles, about the basics of morality, not about all the details. He says they're the same for all, the same for everyone, in two different ways. 
To say that they're the same for all as to rectitude means that they're right for everyone. It's not just wrong for me to steal, it's wrong for you to steal. It's not just wrong for you to be unfaithful to your spouse, it's wrong for me to be unfaithful to my spouse. To say that they are the same for all as to knowledge, now that's the tricky one. That's to say that at some level, they're not only they're not just right for everyone, but they're actually known to everyone. Some thinkers say, oh, that's ridiculous. People don't know these things, even if they really are true. People don't know the moral law. Other thinkers say, well, no, I agree with Thomas Aquinas, the general principles, but you know those general principles don't go very far. They think that these general principles, which everyone is supposed to know at some level, get no further than do good and avoid evil. They even attribute this view to St. Thomas himself, but St. Thomas says, I quote, the natural reason of every man judges it right to honor our fathers and mothers and, to, and wrong to murder and steal. And he says that our minds recognize things like this, I quote again, of their own accord and at once. Could it really be true that everyone knows these things? Everyone knows this sort of things, the sorts of things that are expressed in the Ten Commandments, that even the thief knows the wrong of theft, the murderer knows the wrong of murder, the adulterer knows the wrong of adultery, the God-mocker knows deep down the wrong of mocking his maker. It seems preposterous, and yet St. Thomas says this is true. I think it is too. If it is true, what follows? It follows that when we say, well, I'm doing the best that I can, everything is shades of gray, I'm just blundering through the fog, what follows is that we're not doing the best that we can, everything is not shades of gray, the moral basics are pretty clear to us, and we're not blundering through a fog. It follows that the basics of right and wrong, I don't say all the details, but the basics of right and wrong are actually pretty clear to us. Should I cheat on the test? No. Should I be unfaithful to my friend, disloyal? No. Should I um, desert my wife and children? No. Should I honor my parents? Yes. It follows that if we seem to be surrounded by fog, it's only because we've pulled the fog down around us. When it comes to the moral basics, then, we may pretend to ourselves that we don't know what's right, but really deep down we do know what's right. We even make use of the moral law to build excuses. Rationalization is the homage that sin pays to guilty knowledge. For example, somebody, you can't not know. It's wrong to deliberately take innocent human life. But you even make use of that very knowledge in order to justify murder. Oh, that old man, I know I killed my, I know I killed my grandfather to get, uh, to get uh, that inheritance, but he didn't have a life. That vermin, he wasn't human, <laughs> right? People say if the unborn child is not alive, do you know that there are even some, some uh, pro-abortion activists who say that the unborn child, that, that they admit that it's wrong to deliberately take innocent human life, but the reason that they say the reason you can't, can have an abortion is that the fetus is not innocent. 
It makes the woman pregnant against her will. It's an intruder in her womb, something like a burglar, and it's justifiable to use lethal force to put an end to its aggression. So you see, I mean, even the knowledge, even these excuses make use of the knowledge that it's wrong to deliberately take innocent human life. You say it's not human, it's not deliberate, it's not life, it's not innocent. Now let me bring this back to the new evangelization. And I mean the moral side of the new evangelization to witnessing to the truth of the natural law, which our recent popes have said is so important, to witnessing to things like the sanctity of life, to witnessing to things like the wholesomeness of faithful marriage. First, the fact that people scream protests against the basics of the natural law doesn't mean that they don't have a clue about them. If they do scream, if they do get very angry with us, they do so largely because they do have a clue, and the clue causes pain. Their consciences are tender. Proclaiming the truth to them is like probing a wound with a hot needle. Second, we often go about proclaiming moral truth backwards. We tend to assume when people act as though they're ignorant, when they put on airs of being ignorant, I'm doing the best I can, everything is shades of gray, we take them at their word, we believe them. We think it's really just as unclear to them as they say it is. And so we, you know, essentially, you know, you would think that people would boast that they know something. This is the one area of human life where people boast that they don't know everything. They all insist that it's hard to tell what's right and wrong. And we tend to assume, therefore, that our task is to pump in moral knowledge. There's a shortage of it. We have to somehow get it inside the, the mind. But if people really do know more about right and wrong than they let on, if they really do know more than they admit, even to themselves, then our task isn't so much to pump in moral knowledge that they don't have, as it is to stir up and dredge the suppressed moral knowledge that's already there. And you know, if there wasn't something already there, you couldn't ever teach anybody, anybody anything new anyway. Every new thing that you learn in any field of knowledge whatsoever depends on some knowledge that's already there. When you teach a child to recognize habitually that two plus two is four, you're depending on the fact that he of his own knowledge can see that when you put the two things together and the two things together over here, and then you bring the two twos together, he can count them one, two, three, four. He can see for himself that it is true. You're building on something that he already knows, and that's true in moral teaching too. So there is something there, and what we have to do when it comes to the moral basics is dredge it, bring it back up to the surface. It isn't a matter so much of pumping it in. By the way, the procedure that I'm suggesting is thoroughly scriptural. Consider what St. Paul does when he visits Athens, when he visits the Areopagus. He doesn't say, you ignorant Athenians, you don't know anything about God. Now listen, because I'm going to have to start from scratch with you. No, on the contrary. He compliments them for being religious. He says, I see you are very religious people. He quotes to them what their own poets have said about God, in whom we live and move and have our being, as he quotes to them. Only then does he let fly with his sharpened arrows. He remarks, gently, that on his way into town, he noticed altars to a great many gods, but amid all those altars, he saw one that was inscribed to an unknown God. I know you know the story. Now, to erect an altar to something unknown is to admit 
tacitly that you do know something. You know that this unknown God exists. You know that you long to know him. You know that you don't know him. So the apostle taps that knowledge by this reminder, and he says, in effect, let me tell you who he is. What St. Paul does to stir up the suppressed knowledge of God, I believe we can do to stir up the suppressed knowledge of right and wrong. Now, I face a certain difficulty concerning how to proceed since my talk has two different sponsors. You know, one sponsor is the philosophy department, and so the scholars in the room are going to be wondering things like this. Wait a moment, Budyshevsky, you point out that Thomas Aquinas said that everyone knows those Ten Commandments kinds of things, like do not steal, but St. Thomas really couldn't have meant it when he said that, because didn't he also say that among the Germans, theft was not considered wrong? And that's a good question. But the other sponsor of the talk is student life, and so uh, you students in the room who are more numerous and out outnumber your professors here might be wondering things like, wait a moment, Budzyshevsky, you talk about the law written on the heart and you say that we can stir up buried moral knowledge, but practically speaking, come on, how can we actually do that? Couldn't you at least provide some examples? You're being so abstract, and that request is reasonable too. So my solution to the quandary of which of these two groups to try to please is that I'm going to try to please them both, but not at the same time. So first let me discuss what St. Thomas really meant about those Germans. And then let me offer some examples of how we actually can stir up buried moral knowledge. And in fact, these two things are connected. As St. Thomas famously remarks in Summa Theologiae, question 90, second part of the second part, question 94, Article 4, I'm following the Dominican Father's translation. I'm sorry, I don't think there's a Franciscan uh, Father's translation either. Theft, although it is expressly contrary to the natural law, was not considered wrong among the Germans. That's what the translation says. Many readers mistakenly take St. Thomas Aquinas to mean that human reason can completely fail to grasp even moral precepts as basic as do not steal, as fundamental as thou shalt not steal. Well, that's actually not at all what he means, but it takes a little time to dig that fact out. First, let's notice that his remark about the Germans has been badly translated here. What he actually says is this. Thus formerly, latrocinium, that's the Latin word, latrocinium, although it is expressly contrary to the natural law, was not considered wrong among the Germans. Now the Dominican Father's translation renders latrocinium as theft. Actually though, the term latrocinium does not refer to theft at all. St. Thomas distinguishes among a number of different offenses against property, furtum, which is theft, is unjustly taking another's property by stealth, and rapina, robbery, is unjustly taking another's property by coercion or violence. Latrocinium is a particular subcategory of robbery. Which subcategory? Well, the term might be at best be translated banditry or piracy. Uh, a latro in Roman law was an armed bandit or raider. Now, concerning the Germans themselves, what did they think about this? 
We have evidence about what the Germans thought, and not only that, we know that this evidence was available to Thomas Aquinas too, because he tells us his source for the statement about the Germans. And what is his source? It's the sixth book of Julius Caesar's Commentaries on the Gallic Wars. And we find right away, if we, go, if we go to the passage that he's using, that Caesar does not consider the Germans ignorant of the wrong of theft in general, or even of banditry. In fact, Caesar remarks the Germans considered such crimes as theft and banditry, fertrum and latrocinium, so detestable that on the occasions when they sacrificed human beings to propitiate their gods, they preferred to burn perpetrators of these crimes. Doesn't sound as though they considered them innocent, does it? But if the Germans did know the wrong of latrocinium, then what can Thomas Aquinas be thinking? What he doubtless has in mind is a slightly later passage where Caesar explains that the Germans approved not of banditry as such, but of raiding expeditions against other tribes. Here's what Caesar says. Latrocinia, you know, raiding parties, raiding acts, which are committed beyond the boundaries of each state, bear no infamy. And they avow, the Germans avow, that these are committed for the purpose of disciplining their youth and of preventing sloth. And if any of their chiefs has said in assembly that he'll be their leader, let those who are willing to follow give in their names, then they who approve of both the enterprise and the man arise and promise their assistance and are applauded by the people. Such of them as have not followed him are accounted in the number of deserters and traitors, and confidence in all matters is afterward refused them. So, the manner in which the judgment of these barbarians was led astray, to use St. Thomas's expression, wasn't that they were ignorant of the wrong of theft, wasn't that they were ignorant of, of the wrong of plundering their neighbors, but that they pretended to themselves that the members of other tribes weren't their neighbors. You see, although banditry is expressly contrary to the natural law, and the Germans knew it, they tried to cut a loophole. They knew banditry was wrong, but they tried to tell themselves that their kind of banditry didn't count as banditry. It's much the same with us as it was with them, isn't it? By pretending that the members of other tribes weren't neighbors, the ancient Germans tried to cut a loophole in the prohibition of banditry. By pretending, for example, that unborn children aren't neighbors, modern Americans cut a loophole or try to cut a loophole in the prohibition of murder. The Germans practiced violence against the members of other tribes, Latrocinium. We Americans practiced violence against our own children, abortus provocatus. But just as those Germans actually did know the wrong of banditry, otherwise why would they be burning bandits to propitiate their gods, we Americans actually do know the wrong of murder. And deep down, we and the Germans know that our lies are lies. Now let's turn to the practicalities of how to stir up buried moral knowledge. By the way, I'm not changing the subject as much as you might think. First he was talking to the professors, now he's talking about the students. Now I'm not changing the subject as much as you might think. You won't be able to miss the fact that several of my practical examples are drawn from conversations about abortion. 
which is no accident. I've written a lot about this subject, and uh, my wife is a crisis pregnancy counselor for about 13 years, uh, and I've talked to, to, uh, to, I had a little bit of connection with the crisis pregnancy center myself, and I've talked to lots of, lots of counselors about these things. So here I'm gonna set aside my written text, and I'm just gonna tell you some stories. A student came to me once, this wasn't about abortion, but it was, uh, but it was after class, and he said, uh, he said to me, you know, professor, in class today, you mentioned the moral law, um, but isn't morality just relative? Isn't morality just relative? Um, uh, some people might even say that murder is wrong. Okay, there was a time, once upon a time, when I would have responded to a young man like this by thinking, oh my gosh, this poor guy doesn't know murder is wrong. I'm gonna to have to pump that knowledge into his head. I'm gonna to have to convince him that murder is wrong. I'm gonna to have to teach him that murder is wrong. I'm gonna to have to somehow find considerations sufficient to persuade him of the wrong of murder. And that was exactly the wrong thing to do because you can't convince something of somebody of something that he already knows. I now realize people do know these things. So what I said to him was, um, are you really in any doubt about the wrong of murder? And he said, well, some people might say that it was all right. And I said, well, sure, but I'm not talking to some people, I'm talking to you. Are you at this moment in any real doubt that murder, the deliberate taking of innocent human life, is wrong for everyone? And he hemmed and he hawed a little bit, but then he, but then he admitted, well, no, I guess I'm not. Now, you always have to follow through here. You might think, whoa, gee, triumph. No, that's not a triumph yet. You have to follow through, follow through, follow through. So I said, well, then in that case, we don't need to waste time talking, talking about relativism, which you're not really in doubt about, as we now discover. Why don't you tell me something you really are in doubt about? Now, that was a sort of a moment of, of, uh, of transformation for him then. It was eye-opening. He had thought that he was in doubt about moral truth or relativism, and he really wasn't. All it took was just a question. Are you really in any doubt about that? No doubt he did have real doubts, but at least now we could talk about something that wasn't a waste of time. Here's another example. I call that, that first one turning back the question. The second one, this is dissipating smoke. Um, has this ever happened to you? You're having a discussion with somebody about some matter of moral truth, or maybe something else like the existence of God, and the person, um, the person has, uh, has, has many, many objections, and uh, you answer them, and you try to answer them. Well, in, it's happened to me in several conversations that I would try to do this, and the person would pepper me with objection after objection. Now, he would let me begin to answer each objection. But then just as I was about to get to the punchline of the response to the objection, uh, the person that I was speaking with would stop, interrupt me, and instead introduce a totally new objection from a totally different direction. So I said to, um, I said to, I said to, uh, to, to one person, have you noticed the, a pattern in our conversation? And he said, no, what? And I said, well, it's just that you have a lot of objections. And he said, well, yeah, sure I do. 
And I said, oh, that, yeah, I know, but that's not, that's not, I haven't got there yet. I said, I said, but have you noticed that every time I begin to tell you my answer to the objection, you interrupt just before I get to the punchline and, and give me another. And uh, this fellow said, um, yeah, I guess I am doing that. Why do you think I'm doing that? I said, well, I don't know. Why do you think you're doing it? And he said, I guess it must be because I don't want to hear the answers. I said, okay then. What this shows us, this is the follow through again. What this shows us is that the important thing for us to talk about isn't all of those objections. The important thing for us to talk about is why you don't want to hear the answers. Now you might think, well, that's not much. Gosh, you're only tell, telling us something, okay, you got him to see that he didn't want to hear the answers, but it isn't as though you've converted him, changed his mind about anything. Well, no, these are multi-encounter conversations. What you're trying to do is open a window that is shut. If you can get that window to open for only 15 seconds before, by cleverness, somebody closes it again, you have achieved something. And by cleverness, they will close it again. That's what a lot of modern college education is about. Not making people wise, but making them clever. So that when a window opens on truth, they can come up with clever arguments to shut it again. But if that window keeps opening, people begin to remember. It irritates them. That window was open for a couple of seconds. It did it again, and it gets under their skin, and they begin thinking about it. And so maybe in the next conversation, you can make a little more progress, or maybe not you but somebody else. You have to look for those opportunities to get a little light. Here's another example. I call this one connecting the dots. Um, my wife, when she was a, well, no, this is, this, this is not actually about uh, my wife. Uh, this example is about a friend of mine who was a chaplain at a, uh, uh, a Protestant student group at one of the Texas universities. And um, there was a young woman in the Christian student group who um, had always been at least theoretically pro-life. Well, she got pregnant, um, and she had an abortion. And it was very interesting. She became an ardent and very radical feminist, and she was ardently... Uh, pro-abortion, and she marched in the, in the pro-abortion parades, and she gave a speech to her college rhetoric class. The, the topic was open, so it was about how her abortion had solved all her problems. She was very aggressive about this. You wouldn't have suspected that there was any problem. Well, some months later, there came a week when all at once she fell into a black suicidal depression. Like like throwing a switch one day. And she goes and she talks to him. She talks to the chaplain and she said, um, she told him about it. He had a suspicion of what was going on. She hadn't connected the dots. So he said, well, if you hadn't, you told me sometime before about your abortion. And she said, yes, yes, I did. And he said, um, if you hadn't had the abortion, about when would the child have been born? And she thought about it and she said, well, right about now. 
And she said, and when did this depression sink upon you? And she said, right about now, this week. She connected the dots. Notice he didn't tell her anything. He didn't tell her anything. He only asked her questions. But he enabled her to connect the dots. That brought something that was submerged to the conscience. Um, call this one releasing the catch. This is the one where I began to say that the story was my wife's. When she worked at the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Austin, one of the things that they had to do was have the women complete an intake form. This was partly, I understand, because of state reporting requirements. And anyway, on the form, it would say, um, have you ever had an abortion in the past? Uh, and the woman would write yes or would write no. Um, if you have had an abortion, how many abortions have you had? Might put down one. Did you have any medical consequences as a result of the abortion? Woman might write no, or she might write yes. I had to go back because they hadn't finished, finished the job. I was having cramping and bleeding or, or, or uh, something like this. Or maybe I had no problems. Did you have any psychological problems as a consequence of the abortion? Or emotional problems? Almost always the woman would say no. That's what they say to survey researchers too most of the time, which is why so many surveys say, oh, there's no such thing as post-abortion trauma, uh, although actually there is a lot of good evidence of that. Well, anyway, my wife's not a, is, is, has, does things very interestingly. And even though the women had already filled out this form before they saw her, when they came in and saw her, and they were, you know, in, in, privately, uh, just having a personal conversation, she would just go through the same questions again. Had, have you had any abortions before? Woman might have written on the form, uh, no, but now she said, yes, I have. How interesting, different answer. She might say, how many have you had? It might have been a woman who had said, yes, she'd had an abortion before, she'd had one. And now she'd say, about three. Did you have any medical uh, consequences as a result of your abortion? Well, the answer was usually the same as it had been on the form. Did you have any emotional or um, psychological after effects from your abortion? And the woman would say, just like on the form, no, my wife's not afraid of silence. No. Pause. 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 And into that silence, the woman would speak. She might clench her fists and say, other than the usual, And my wife could say, what's the usual? It's like opening up the clasp on a jewelry box of these locked up feelings. The world doesn't want you to admit that you're afraid to admit. And somebody has to release that clasp for you. That may be sometimes all you can do. That's a lot. There is, um, there's another thing. This is sort of a variation of, on, the, on the one where, where I said, have you noticed a pattern in this conversation? Sometimes people have a lot of objections or a lot of questions, but they do let you give the answer. They don't change the subject. They listen out to the answer. Huh, they say, and then pose another question. 
and another objection, unfazed, and it just goes on and on and on, and it seems more like cleverness than really getting at the truth. Um, there was a conversation I had with a guy, and I, I said, um, well, you have a lot of objections and a lot of questions, and he said, yeah. I said, thought experiment. Suppose we took a couple of weeks, or however long it would take, and we just blocked everything else off our calendars. We cleared our calendars. Okay, I didn't have to do any lectures. You didn't have to go to class. We worked it out with our teachers and so forth. And, you know, we just locked ourselves up somewhere, maybe had pizza piped in, and, uh, and we did nothing except that you would pose me all these questions and objections to what we've been talking about, and I would try to answer them. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, now suppose, just suppose, thought experiment, that I could, answer, I could answer all of your objections and your questions, even to your own intellectual satisfaction. And he says, I don't think you could. And I said, well, pretend. All right. I said, would you then change your mind? And he said, no. Follow through. I said, then what that shows us is these objections are not why you don't believe this. What do you think is the real reason why you don't believe it? That unearths something. There is a calling attention to the obvious is another thing that you can do. This is from my wife's experience again. She said it, it happened so often, it broke her heart. Sometimes a woman at the center would have had a pregnancy test. Now, you understand, my wife is not a medical professional, and so she was not allowed to say, you are pregnant. But she could say the result of the pregnancy test is positive, uh, the, the accuracy rate of this test is such and such and such. You know, the woman had to make her own decision whether to believe the result of the test. Okay, but they did believe them, and they, they actually knew that they were pregnant. Um, and then the, the, the young woman would often say, but I can't have a baby just now. I can't have a baby right now. Well, I suppose it, this is one of the reasons why it was a good thing that my wife was the counselor and not me. At that point in our, in our lives, I might have thought that the right answer would be to do something like say, oh, yes, you can, dear. Yes, you can. Sure, you can. No, what she said was, you know, the woman said, I can't have a baby right now. My wife would say, can I ask you a question? She said, yeah. She said, what do you call what's inside you right now? And the woman would always say, well, I call it a baby. My wife would say, okay, she, she, she got the answer from the woman. She didn't have to tell her. She said, well, then it looks like the question that you're facing is not whether you can have an abortion right now, whether you can have a baby right now, but what you're going to do with the baby you've already got. Because you're telling me you've got one. Okay? That's calling attention to the obvious. Again, don't tell people. You call attention to it by asking them questions that they really know the answers to. You're not imposing anything on them. Here's one that I used to always deal with the wrong way. Um, I'm, a, I'm a university professor. 
The making of logical arguments is very important to me. Teaching my students to make logical arguments is very, very important. Well, okay, fine. College education used to teach people to do that. It used to teach them the importance of it. Now, sometimes, you know, you may be talking with somebody and uh, one party notices that what the other party said is inconsistent. You know, you just contradicted yourself. Or maybe you were incoherent in some other way. For instance, um, like an English professor who stands up in front of the class and says, we're speaking about the theory of communication today, and I want you to understand that no one can ever recover the meaning of any utterance. Now, I want you to understand that. All right? That's not an inconsistency. The professor didn't say someone can recover the meaning of an utterance and nobody can recover the meaning of the utterance. Rather, you said that nobody could, but you were expecting them to do it. Okay? That's incoherent. And so sometimes, you know, you might say to somebody, do you realize, excuse me, I, I, I don't mean to sound rude, but it seems that what you just said is incoherent. Oh, how? Because of so-and-so. Well, once upon a time, I'm told, uh, people used to say in a situation like that, oh gosh, you're right. What I said was incoherent. Let me re-examine my premises. This has got to be coherent. I mean, we're going for the truth here. Let me rethink that. That's not what happens now. Not in these postmodern times. Uh, often, I'll, it, it has happened, I might be speaking with somebody and he says something, and, it, and I say, do you realize that you just said something incoherent? And he says, oh yeah, I guess I did. Well, that's okay. Because the universe is incoherent. And I don't need meaning and truth anyway. Once upon a time, I would have thought the right answer to that was to, was to, to think, this poor fellow, he doesn't know that he, need, that he needs meaning and truth. He doesn't even know there is a truth. I have to convince him of this. No, no, he knows it already. So now I just call the person's bluff. I don't need meaning and truth. I say, I don't believe you. You know as well as I do that the longing for meaning and truth is deep set in every created mind. You know, nobody's ever told me, not in mine. Nobody has ever denied it when I say that. And, uh, and uh, again, follow through, follow through, follow through. I, you know, I, I go on and I say, so tell me, what is it that you want so much that you're willing to pay the price of incoherency and loss of meaning to have it? Now, this is one of those times when that window is open for longer than 15 seconds, usually. The jaw drops. These, these, these are folks who may be used to giving clever answers. They don't usually have a clever answer to that one. What you're asking them, put it in theological terms, what you're asking them is, what is your idol? What is your idol? And then finally, there's this one. I don't know what to call this. It isn't exactly a conversational move. It isn't some piece of cleverness that you can learn. It's just waiting for an opportunity from God. I think when we're talking to people, we have to remember they know more than they think they know. They know more than they admit to themselves that they know. They certainly more, know more than they admit to you that they know. And they have to learn to admit it to themselves. Um, 
I was in office hours one day at the University of Texas, and a student came to my door. He's an older student. He was in his 30s. He was a returning student. He'd been out of school for years. He came to my office door. He was a very melodramatic guy, okay? And he says, Professor, I got to talk to you. And I said, well, okay, come on in. What do, we gotta, what do you got to talk to me about? And he said, you're scaring me. You're scaring me. I said, how am I scaring you? Well, you know, we went, I'm shortening this. We went through many, because he was so melodramatic, we went through many iterations of this, but finally he says, well, it isn't really you. It's this guy, Aristotle, that you're making us read. Because I'd assigned the Nicomachean Ethics. He's scaring me. And I said, well, how is Aristotle scaring you? And he finally told me. He said, because in this book of his, you're making us read, he keeps talking about virtue. And it's made, making me realize that I haven't led a virtuous life. And I'm shaken. And he held out his hand, and it was, in fact, shaking. Now, I don't know, maybe he was having DTs or something, you know, but, but I believe him. He said it was because he was scared. I believe him. He was melodramatic, but he was also an essentially truthful guy. And he was scared. Now, you might think, oh, well, <laughs> Aristotle must have started talking about the wages of sin. No. He was talking about virtue as traits of character that you need to have to live a flourishing life. Well, he must have talked about God and about judgment. No, he hadn't talked about any of those things. And until this moment, I had not known that God could use an old pagan philosopher to stir up the conviction of sin in the heart of somebody on whom he had written his law. So I had to say, well, I don't think Aristotle has the answer to your question. And as your teacher at the University of Texas, I really don't have the authority to tell you an answer to the question. But if you wish, I could speak to you man to man. I could tell you how my faith answers that question. He said, please tell me. Now, I think that we can do these things. I think we better be ready because People catch us by surprise. We ought to know ourselves. Is there anybody here? Is there anybody here who has never had the experience of doing something wrong and you knew it was wrong, but you told yourself it wasn't? We've all done that. We've all done that. We've all buried our feelings even so that you might have done it, you knew it was wrong, but you didn't even feel bad, although there might have been other symptoms of deeply buried guilty knowledge. We've all done this. This isn't self-righteous. We ought to recognize that this is not just an experience that Catholics have or that Christians have. This is a universal human experience. This is an experience that people have created by God with consciences, created by God with the law written on the heart, and yet fallen, and yet fallen. We can speak to that. Nothing new can be written on the heart, but nothing needs to be. All we need is the grace of God to see what's already there. We don't want to read the letters because they burn 
but they do burn, so at last we have to read them. This is why the nation can repent. This is why the plague of craziness and evil can be arrested. This is why the new evangelism can progress. This is why even the culture of death can perhaps, by the grace of God, be turned into a culture of life. Perhaps one day the people of our land will say to their Redeemer, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.